Now, last week, we began a new study through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And Paul writes to his dear brothers and sisters in Christ at the church there. And he encourages them to rejoice. He thanks them for their partnership, their support, and he prays for their growth. And as Paul writes, he is under house arrest in Rome. He's preparing to face down the Roman ruler Nero to make a defense of the gospel that he's been preaching. And as Paul readies himself for this confrontation, he knows that his life is on the line. This meeting with Nero could lead to his death. After all, Nero was known for killing Christians. Or Paul could be set free to do more fruitful ministry. Ultimately, that's what Paul is confident that God will do. But on top of his house arrest and his meeting with Nero looming, Paul is facing opposition from fellow Christians. Other preachers are rejoicing that Paul is in prison. They're hoping to discourage him and disparage him through their evangelistic success. But to be honest, Paul doesn't seem too concerned about these opponents. More than anything, he's just happy that people are hearing about Jesus, whether it be through his imprisonment or through those preachers who hate him. In spite of all the hardships that Paul is dealing with, he's still joyful. Paul's joyful because he's confident that whatever God has in store for him, whether it be life or death, Christ will be honored. And that, above all else, Christ's honor, that's what Paul lives for. The man eats, sleeps, and breathes the glory of God and the advancement of the good news of Christ. And last week our prayer, and this week our prayer as well, is that the same could be said of us. But as we mentioned last week, Paul isn't the only one dealing with stress and pressure in the book of Philippians. The people of Philippi Christian Church are facing some of their own challenges. There appears to be some tension within the church, enough that Paul feels the need to remind them of their common identity in Christ. But there also appears to be pressure from outside of the church, enough that Paul would challenge them to stand firm in the faith. But even Paul's instruction and his rebukes and even his warnings they all come back to the singular desire of his heart and his mind. And last week we talked about how the singular desire of his heart and mind is the honor and praise of Christ. So everything we read last week comes back to Christ. And everything we read this week comes back to Christ as well. So open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, thank you for this morning, and thank you for your word. I pray that the words that are said here this morning would bear fruit in the life of this church and would bring you glory. I pray that... What is said here this morning would be in accordance with sound doctrine, with healthy teaching that accomplishes what you wanted to accomplish. And Father, give us ears to hear this morning what your word says. We might need to hear different things depending on where we are. Some of us need to hear a message of encouragement. Some of us need to be challenged. Some of us need to be convicted. Some of us just need some hope. 
So, Father, I pray that whatever it is that we need this morning, I pray that you provide it to us through your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for your word, specifically this book of Philippians that we read today. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So looking back to verse 27, what does it mean for someone's manner of life to be worthy of the gospel of Christ? Think about that. To be truly worthy of Christ would have to be perfection, right? Because Jesus himself lived a sinless life. But realistically, perfection isn't attainable for us, even after we become Christians. So if that's what Paul has in mind, then none of us could ever meet that challenge that he issues. But thankfully, Paul elaborates. He gives us more information about what he means when he says a manner of life worthy of the gospel. So, for example, Paul challenges the Philippians to stand firm in one spirit. This, again, indicates that there may have been some external pressure from non-believers in Philippi. And that external pressure may have been leading to internal strife. He also tells them to have one mind striving together. Now, that phrase, one mind, that sounds unrealistic, doesn't it? I mean, we can't even agree on what temperature the thermostat should be set on in the sanctuary. And yet Paul tells us that we're supposed to have one mind striving together. How can that possibly work? Well, Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians that may help us better understand, but we'll come back to that a little bit later. And then Paul tells these Philippians not to be frightened by their opponents. He says that eventually their opponents will be no more and that these Philippian Christians will be saved. One man's judgment is another man's deliverance. But there's a little bit of a catch. It's true that one day the Philippians' opponents will be defeated by God. It's true that they will be saved. But that doesn't mean that these Christians won't have to suffer now. After all, no servant is greater than his master. Paul suffered like Christ did, because Christ was his master. And Paul, as the godfather of the Philippian church, if Paul's called to suffer, then these Philippian Christians will suffer too. If God sees fit to let Paul suffer for the sake of the gospel, God may allow churches like this one to suffer as well. Now, we've mentioned already that joy is one of the major themes in the book of Philippians, if not the biggest theme. But not far behind is the theme of suffering. Now, you hear those two things, joy and suffering, and you think, well, that doesn't really seem like it belongs together. 
But in Paul's mind, joy and suffering can coexist. But they can only coexist because of Christ. Scholar Gordon Fee writes, Joy and suffering is not delight in feeling badly. Rather, it is predicated on the unshakable foundation of the work of Christ, both past and future. Joy has nothing to do with circumstances, but everything to do with one's place in Christ. The reason that Paul can suffer with joy as he sits in chains, as he faces persecution, as he faces opposition, as he wakes up every morning and is tempted to give up hope, the reason that Paul can still worship and can still praise and can still have joy is because Paul knows what his place in Christ is. Paul knows that regardless of what's going on around him, regardless of his earthly circumstances, he is saved by Christ. That Jesus' tomb is still empty, and that one day his tomb will be empty too. It's because of Paul's confidence in Christ that he can suffer with joy. And I pray that we too would suffer with joy when our hardships inevitably come. That we would be just as confident about our place in Christ as Paul is. But let's continue. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul begins with a rhetorical question. Of course all these things are true. There is encouragement in Christ. There is comfort from love. There is participation in the Spirit. There is affection and sympathy between Paul and these Philippians. All those things are true. And because all those things are true, Paul can make this request. Or rather, Paul can give this command. And he says that the Philippians' obedience to this command will bring him great encouragement and bring him great comfort as he sits in chains. His command, his request, sounds similar to what we just read, verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1. He tells them to be unified in their love, and then there it is again, be unified in their mind. Paul asks these Christians to love the same things He loves, namely Christ above all else. He asks them to think the same things that he thinks, the glory of God, the honor of Christ, and the advancement of the gospel. And then Paul asks them to simply do what follows. Humbly and selflessly serve each other. Don't be marked by rivalry or conceit like those preachers who hate Paul from chapter 1. Worry less about your own concerns and more about the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's been said before that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but humility is thinking of yourself less. And that's what Paul challenges the Philippians to do. So Paul begins today's passage with ethical instruction. Live like the saints God has already declared you to be. Be bold in your faith. Be unified in your hearts and minds. 
persevere through hardship, be willing to suffer, care for one another more and more every day. But like an actor or an actress really trying to get into their part, we might ask, okay, Paul, that all sounds good on paper, but what's my motivation? What's my motivation to do all this stuff that you're talking about? Because the stuff you're telling us to do can be a little bit hard. It might even cost us something. So what's my motivation, Paul? What's my deeper reasoning for obeying? Well, in the next few verses, Paul gives the Philippians and gives us our motivation for obedience. Our motivation for obedience is Christ. Our motivation for obedience is not making us feel better about ourselves. Obedience is not about forcing God to reward us with a carefree life, because Paul's talked a lot about suffering. Our motivation for obedience is not to show off to the world around us, to impress people. Our motivation for obedience is not just because it's the right thing to do. Christ is our motivation for obedience. Now, these next few verses, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, they may sound familiar because they make their way into lots of the sermons here at Prairie View. Many people look at this passage and believe it's one of the earliest Christian hymns that came into existence. And some even look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11 and say that it is Paul's master story. So if there's one thing that you take from this morning's sermon, let it be this, these verses as we read them together, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. In the very first line, verse five, we see the same thing that we've seen several times already. Paul talks about our minds. He tells the Philippians to have the mind of Christ and as a result to imitate Christ. Now take a moment and think about the most humble, selfless, sacrificial person that you know. I'm sure there are all kinds of great examples that we could come up with. Godly parents and grandparents and friends. We think about soldiers who have sacrificed their lives. We think about firemen or police officers who have died in the line of duty. And we should honor those, those examples of humility and service and sacrifice. We should certainly tip our caps to those people and salute them and give them great praise. But to be honest, as wonderful as those people might be, as wonderful as those sacrifices and acts of service might be, the truth is that none of them can even hold a candle to what Christ has done for us. Jesus was equal with God. He had every right to be worshipped in the presence of God for all eternity. 
And yet he descended into our sinful world and put on flesh. Jesus is the total opposite of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They grasped for the fruit that they had no right to, all because Satan said it would make them like God. But Jesus, on the other hand, who already is God, does not exploit that for his own benefit. He doesn't use that for his own gain. Instead, Jesus voluntarily takes the form of not just any servant, but takes the form of the ultimate, perfect, suffering servant. He submits himself to the ultimate humiliation of the cross for sinners like Adam and Eve, for sinners like you and me, people who grasp at trying to be God, people who grasp at trying to be in control. Christ dies for people like us. Theologian N.T. Wright says, The real humiliation of the incarnation and the cross is that one who was himself God and who never during the whole process stopped being God could embrace such a calling. We see that humiliation in the first half of verses 5 through 11. We see the descent and the low point of verse 8, that Christ would humble himself to death, even death on a cross. But then the second half of the hymn rises back up. Jesus is exalted by God, back to his rightful place of honor and glory. Paul quotes Isaiah 45, verse 23, but just one verse earlier, Isaiah 45, 22, we read this. God says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Think about that. God the Father shares his glory with Jesus the Son because Jesus is equal with God. And this man, the one equal with God, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, the one who humbled himself to death, even at death on a cross. That man is the reason and the motivation for everything Paul did, all the suffering he endured, all the hardship he placed upon himself. It all comes back to Christ. And so I pray that everything we say and everything that we do would all come back to Christ as well. Martin Luther writes this, talking about Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Although Christ was filled with the form of God and rich in all good things, so that he needed no work and no suffering to make him righteous and saved, for he had all this eternally, yet he was not puffed up by them and did not exalt himself above us and assume power over us although he could have rightly done so. Martin Luther goes on and says this, Although the Christian, talking about us, although the Christian is thus free from all works, he ought in this liberty to empty himself, take upon himself the form of a servant, and to serve. He ought to think, we ought to think. Although I am an unworthy and condemned man, My God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part. I will therefore give myself as a Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me. 
because Christ humbled himself, because Christ took on the form of a servant. We humble ourselves, and we take on the form of servants for those around us, for Christ's honor and God's glory. And then closing out the passage, Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Because of who Christ is and what he has done, we obey. We follow in his footsteps. He is our motivation. Now that verse about working out our salvation with fear and trembling has troubled a lot of people over the years. We read that and we think, now wait a minute, doesn't Paul say that it's not our works that saves us, but here he says we need to work out our salvation? Which one is it? Well, this verse is likely not referring to our salvation in eternity, but rather the Philippians' specific situation of persecution. It's a call to persevere, to have this mind of Christ, even as they're tempted to break inside from all the pressure they face outside. But then Paul closes the passage with a final clear call that the Philippians would be Christ's people, that we would be Christ's people. He tells them not to be like the sinful, grumbling Israelites in the Old Testament. Instead, to shine like lights in a dark world. Because Paul knows that if Christians actually have the mind of Christ, and if as a result we actually live like Christ, we will stick out like sore thumbs in our world. We live in a world that sees arrogance and obnoxiousness and calls it strength. And in a world like that, humility sticks out. In a society that tells us we have to move up in the world, that's the point of life. Lowering ourselves and humbly serving other people, people might notice that. We will shine like lights in a dark world for the glory and honor of Christ. But again, it all looks good on paper. Christ is your example. Think like him. Live like him. Sounds pretty easy. However, as any Christian should be able to admit, that's easier said than done, isn't it? How do people like us, who are still very much sinners, how do we live this out? How can we possibly rise to Paul's high bar of living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, go back to that word that Paul has used multiple times this morning. He's talked about our minds. 
He talks about our minds quite a bit. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul writes, To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, he talks about taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Using your mind in your discipleship. But I really want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Sounds familiar. Sounds a lot like Philippians. But then look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. Right after a long conversation about wisdom and how the wisdom of God looks foolish compared to the wisdom of the world. It doesn't make sense to the people of the world. Paul then says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That last phrase is important. We have the mind of Christ. So how exactly do we get this mind of Christ? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you as a believer have been given the Holy Spirit. You have the mind of Christ. And because you have the mind of Christ, you can obey. You can be the person Paul challenges you to be, a person who imitates Christ in their words and in their deeds. Now, again, living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is a high calling. It's a calling that is impossible to reach by your own strength. You can't live like Christ at some shallow attempts at behavior modification, habit-forming techniques or self-improvement, or cold turkey, or putting a rubber band on your wrist and snapping it every time you don't do what Jesus would do. It's not that simple. But by the power and grace of God, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, Paul began to think like Christ, and Paul began to live like Christ. And as his life went on, Paul began to look more and more like Jesus, To the point of suffering with joy, just like Jesus did. Suffering with joy as he wrote this letter. Now, every single one of us has been called to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. But we can't do it on our own. We need the example of Jesus. We need the grace of God. We need the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we need the community and accountability of the church. But the good news is that you've been given all of those things. You have the example of Christ in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have the grace of God. And you have a community of believers to encourage you 
and teach you and hold you accountable. You have everything you need. So our prayer this morning is that we would have the mind of Christ and that we would live like Christ. That we would live like Christ so that we would shine as lights in a dark world and point people's eyes to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So I pray this morning that our hearts, our minds, and our lives would be living proof, would be a living testimony of the story of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. That when people see our lives, when people see our hearts, and when people see the things we focus on, they would believe more in who Christ is and what Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We come to a text like this and some of those first few words about living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Those words are intimidating. We look at those words and think, man, how could I possibly do this? I am a sinner. I am imperfect. How in the world can I possibly reach this high calling? But the beauty is that Every single challenge you give us in Scripture, every single teaching that you throw at us, every single intimidating call that you give to us, you give us the things we need to fulfill those challenges and fulfill those calls. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us each other. And more importantly, you've given us your grace. So, Father, I pray that as we leave here this morning, that we would leave here as people being shaped by your son Jesus, shaped by the cross. And that as people look at our words, our deeds, our lives, they would believe more the story of your son Jesus, that we would be living proof of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So, Father, as we prepare to leave here, help us leave as lights shining in a dark world to bring you glory and bring you honor And help us remember that our obedience, our joy, all of it comes back to what Christ has already done for us. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing one more song, and then we'll have a closing prayer to end out our service.